Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Kat's back from her trip. Yay! You, uh, you flew out of town, flew to Maine to attend a wedding. You were actually there a few days early because you had to help them set up. Mm-hmm. How did that go? It went well. The irony that I got a sunburn in Maine is not lost on <laughs> mm-hmm. me, but I was largely in charge of like lugging things. Did things need to come out of cars? I got it. Did things need to be hung up? I got it. Uh-huh. Did things need to be brought upstairs? I got it. And that was one of the... Uh, highlights of my trip was that I was instructed to bring all of the bags that were essential upstairs into the dressing room where the bride would be getting ready. That's an important job. Right. And so there was a stack of bags and it was like, these are the bags that we need. These are the important things. They've got the makeup, the Mm. dress, all that stuff. We Mm. need these bags. And so I was like, I've got these bags. So I got all the bags and I brought them upstairs and I'm sorting them out. And I'm like, okay, so these go here. This needs to go over here. Morgan needs this so she can do the makeup. And I opened up one bag (laughs) and inside was a jar of weed and a bottle of salad dressing. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like... Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Is this essential stuff? Something borrowed, something new, something old, something blue, uh, something dank and fatty. I think it's how the original saying went. That's hilarious. Well, that'd make quite a salad, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> it sure was. Lots of greenery in yeah, that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when you see combinations of products together like that. I often do that. It's it's fun for me at the grocery store to look in other people's carts mm. because it's like reading all the bumper stickers on the back of a person's car. You can get a pretty good idea of who they are and what they like and right. where they stand on certain issues. But I was uh, shopping while you were away and the person next to me in line at the grocery store had with them uh, preparation H and a can of Rust-Oleum. Oh my. <laughs> so I asked, you doing a little work on your undercarriage there or what's going on? <laughs> Got a real busy night planned. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, it is the big city and it is the weekend. I'm kind of excited about this 
particular episode. Yeah. I really think you're going to enjoy this. So gather around your listening device, kitties. Uncle Jethro's going to tell you a story. Uh, I want to preface it by saying, reminding you, I'm pretty fascinated with the idea that someday we as human beings will be able to communicate fluently with another species. Okay, sure, sure. You know, like I did an episode not too long ago about uh, how they're now in the process of deciphering the language of sperm whales. Right, so we can talk with whales. I can see where where the first communication with the sperm whales will be is, what the fuck, you guys? (laughs) Communication with dolphins has been successful on a certain level as well. And then there's Coco, the gorilla. I don't remember. Did we ever do a, a full episode on Coco? I don't think so. Just a quick thumbnail on her and her accomplishments. Coco lived between 1971 through 2018. She was a female Western lowland gorilla born at the San, our San Francisco Zoo, but lived most of her life at the Gorilla Foundation's preserve in the mountains of Santa Cruz, California. Her instructor and caregiver, Francine Patterson, learned to communicate with Coco uh, with what she called gorilla sign language. And Coco had a vocabulary of about a thousand words, a thousand signs, and was able to communicate with humans at about the level of a three-year-old human. It's remarkable. She was also seen trying to teach other non-human primates her language. I love that. (laughs) Couldn't figure out why they couldn't get it. Come on, guys. She made up most of her own, or she made up a lot of her own words for objects that she did not have a word for. And the most famous was when she tasted watermelon. Uh, She signed uh, candy fruit. You might remember also her in the news uh, when she adopted a little kitten as a pet. Yeah. She named it All Ball, which revealed that she had the ability to rhyme. A truly remarkable story, but that's not what I'm going to talk about either. Oh, good. Because that's about enough. That's all I can handle about Coco. I can't. (laughs) It seems now that scientists are closer than ever to communicating with mushrooms. Oh. Now, of course, mushrooms aren't really known for their intelligence. They're probably more well known as a delicious entree when fried and paired with a ranch-based condiment. Scientists have discovered what they now believe to be a mushroom language. And it seems as though the mushrooms do, in fact, talk to each other and quite a lot. They're very chatty. Research is showing that there is much more to mushrooms than we have seen before. And, and I'm not talking about just about uh, the language part, but uh, in 1998, it was discovered that the largest known living organism mm. on the planet Earth is a mushroom. Yeah. But not just any mushroom. It's a mushroom that's four square miles large. And the reason that it wasn't discovered sooner is because most of the network is is underground. And what pokes up through the earth looks to be like separate mushrooms. But actually, it's part of an entire giant mushroom. (laughs) It's huge. And it's estimated to be 8,650 years old. Wow. Wow. And it's located in the Blue Mountains of Oregon. Scientists... Doesn't even make any sense to me. They sampled, uh, they tested samples of these mushrooms poking up through the dirt all over that four square mile region and found that they were all the same, part of the same giant organism. They're connected in all part of the single giant organism. And it's through these varied rope-like connections that the giant organism is able to thrive. And when I say mushrooms talk to each other... It's not like you're going to be wandering through a forest one day and start hearing little high-pitched voices having a conversation. You can learn a lot 
lot of things from the flowers. They communicate through electronic impulses, and it seems like mushrooms are pretty chatty. They're talking almost all of the time. A researcher named Andrew Adamatsky from UWE Bristol has studied and compared these electronic impulses from many different types of mushrooms, like split gill, the ghost mushroom. Split gill sounds like um, the member of a 1980s hair band. Maybe a session player for the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm -hmm. Um, The caterpillar fungi and uh, the anaki. And what he did was he connected electrodes through the bottom of all of these mushroom varieties, and what he discovered was shocking. He discovered that the electrical impulses weren't just random. They were ordered and organized. It was so sophisticated and so ordered to a degree of coordination that suggested that they were forming words and communicating with each other. So what the hell do mushrooms talk about? Right? Um, (laughs) It seems pretty much the same thing that concerns all forms of life. Staying safe and looking for things to eat. (laughs) I'm just picturing a mushroom being like, is there a five guys around here? (laughs) (laughs) In April of this year, Adamatsky published the findings of his study called Language of fungi delivered from their electrical spiking activity. And here's what he's discovered. Now, he took research that had been performed on the human brain that indicates spikes in activity in the region in which the spike occurs have told us many things about how our minds work. And he thought, huh, maybe I can use these studies and patterns to see if there are similar, if there's a similar methodology when examining the electrical impulses gathered from the mushroom study. Okay. He said, quote, we found that the spikes are often clustered into trains, which would suggest not just a lot of activity, but a lot of coordinated activity. At these times, it seems the fungi had something vital to tell each other. Spikes varied in frequency and intensity between the different species. And this study strives to determine the meaning of these events. So they set up some experiments. They considered the length of words and vowels in the English language. And in the English language, a vowel sound has about has an average length of about 0.3 seconds. The average length of a mushroom word is incredibly similar to a word in In human language, the unit of measurement that they used in the study is called spikes. In English, the average word length is 4.8 spikes. The spikes in a mushroom word, 4.7, virtually identical. And they've determined that the mushrooms aren't just talking, but they're talking in a speech pattern similar to the one that humans use. What? Now, again, they're mostly interested in survival. If a single mushroom is harmed or damaged in any way, or even if it just feels threatened, these electrical impulse words alert the rest of the mushrooms in the area, uh, especially the ones connected to that particular mushroom. Well, now I can't eat mushrooms. Much like our own nervous system transmits electrical impulses. Great. And according to Ripley's Believe It or Not, it's not without precedent. Radbund University researcher Joseph Stufer accidentally discovered something similar. Now, he was doing a study on caterpillars, and he noticed that after a caterpillar ate a leaf of a clover plant, caterpillars that came after him passed by that plant. They seemed to be unwilling to consume any of the clover attached 
to the initially nibbled plant. He discovered that the clover had sent out a defense distress signal in response to the first attack. It appeared as though when the other clover leaves received that message, it acted as an early warning system. Quote, each member of the network can receive the extreme external signal of impending danger and transmit it to other members of the network. The response is that the rest of the leaves immediately become tougher and less appetizing. Oh, wow. That's their defense mechanism. Yeah. That's nuts. And it's almost in- instantaneous. Professor Adametsky says that uh, there's still much that we need to learn, but he believes that we could truly decode mushroom language by learning how sophisticated it really is and zeroing in on its true purpose. And perhaps one day we could communicate with mushrooms if we want to. Do you want to know what mushrooms sound like? Yes, please. When they're talking? Mm. I'm just kidding. (laughs) This is what they sound like. It sounds like an old old Moog synthesizer from the 60s, doesn't it? <laughs> but there are very distinguished patterns in these impulses and spikes that lead researchers to believe that these we're listening to sentences that mushrooms are saying. That's insane. My information came from Ripley's, believe it or not, Wikipedia, and from the published study called Language of Fungi Derived from Their Electrical Spiking Activity. You know, I would be really interested to know if fungi in different areas of the world had different dialects. (laughs) Wow, that would be a deep dive for sure. And I wonder if a mushroom is shipped from one part of the world to the other and they're in a grocery store with some local mushrooms, if the local mushrooms make fun of their dialect. Like their accent? Yeah. Like, psh, you talk funny. Yeah. Mushrooms can be so rude. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. 
That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, that thing in the middle. There once was a dolphin named Polaris Jack. He lived off the coast of New Zealand and became extremely famous because he would escort and guide ships out of the French Pass. The French Pass was a notoriously dangerous channel used by ships. For 24 years, between 1888 and 1912, Polaris Jack helped sea vessels travel safely, so much so that ships would wait for his arrival. When a passing ship mistakenly wounded him, New Zealand passed a law that protected Polaris Jack. Okay, we got a message from Jessica in our inbox of oddities, if you will. Oh my God, you guys, I'm on episode 190 and Jethro's talking about the Cardiff Giant. I had to pause and message you because I'm from Cooperstown, New York. Nice. And that is where he's currently on display. No shit. At the Farmer's Museum. Funny you should mention his penis. My, <laughs> no, it's we, not. Did we mention it? Uh, it seems unusual. I'm surprised you didn't expect us to mention that as the first thing. My mom tells me a story of how when she was in her wild years, she and a couple of friends snuck into the museum one night and painted his junk hot pink. <laughs> This was many, many years ago, and apparently the most daring thing she's ever been involved with. Wow, so the statute of limitations has expired. Sure, sure, sure. We're not going to say her last name, though, just in case. Smart. They were, however, able to wash off the paint and never figured out who it was. <laughs> Any whoozle I had to share, I will now finish listening to the episode. Love you guys. I wonder if they just painted, like, lipstick marks. Ew. Uh, Just a thought. What's wrong with you? Don't make it gross. Jalyn wrote, wanted to share that when preparing to marry, neither my husband nor I were attracted to our last names. We were talking about how you kept your last name when we got married. Right. My last name's not Toth. Shank, pronounced Shank, and Hirsch, like a knockoff of already cheap chocolate. So we totally, what we did is we blended our two names using letters from both. Yes. We could spell cherish. Oh. How could we pass on that cuteness? Anyway, thanks for the hours of oddities. I love that. That's really cool. See, we could combine our names and make something so cool. Viper. Linda on Patreon wrote, Yes, Kat, I do agree with the thought of the last name. I was born with it, Mancini. 
I wanted to die with it. Also, I was the first person in my family to be an officer in the military and was established as Mancini. Then I met my husband, Minatel. He said if I didn't take his last name, we couldn't get married. I said if he shaved his head, we wouldn't be married. But now I'm a Minatel, and he went bald. I don't know. There's an awful lot of ultimatums there. That makes me very uncomfortable. (laughs) She says that uh, she's a distant relative of Henry Mancini. Oh, that's cool. And Derek on Patreon sent us a message. He was listening to uh, our recent episode, and it just simply says, wireless headphones die. My phone on full volume, quote, spiky clit. Yeah, sometimes when you just drop in on a box of oddities episode at maximum volume, it can end ugly. Some might say the solution is to stop saying terrible things, but I don't agree. We suggest you just keep your volume down. (laughs) When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is professional-grade storytelling. Don't try this at home, kids. This is The Box of Oddities. I don't know if you guys are hearing this, but while we're recording this episode, apparently they're doing some work in the apartment upstairs. We've been hearing hammering and drilling for about an hour now. (laughs) I hope it's not coming through, but if it is, then hey, did the best we could. What you got for me? Where did that come from? Steven. Steven. He's one of our charter member freaks. He's been with us from the beginning. Yep. And we appreciate so much the effort that it takes to make a little jingle. And please make more. I love it. Didn't we get a a video? Did you post that video of the little girl doing the What You Got For Me jingle? I didn't. I sent it to you, though. Oh, okay. Is this it? What was her name? Luna. What, what, what you got for me? What, what? What you, what you got for me? Oh my God, that's the cutest. Isn't that great? That's the cutest. I love love the growl at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Very very Tom Waits. Thank you, Luna. And so I guess that means you have something for me? I do, in fact. cool. Hawaiian religion, or the kapu system, is polytheistic. Pele is the goddess of volcanoes and fire and the creator of the Hawaiian islands. They call her Madam Pele or Tutu Pele. Polytheist? Is that, is that what you said? I, I said polytheistic. Is that not no, right? No, no, no. Yeah, polytheistic. That re- Do you remember the 
comedian Emo Phillips. No. From a long time ago. Mm-mm. He was uh, weird but brilliant. And uh, he, he was the king of the um, surreal one-liner. Kind of like Stephen Wright. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Very much like that, but just weirder. He said, um, monotheism is a gift from the gods. Anyway, there's a belief that Pele can change into human form, and it's reported that she likes gin. So uh, it's said that you can appease the goddess of volcanoes by tossing a bottle of gin into the volcano. Just pouring your Tom Collins out over the the rim. Speaking of which, we went to dinner last night and I wanted something a little spicy because we were at a Mexican restaurant, but I I didn't know what to order. So I got a Tom (laughs) Collins with jalapeno syrup. Yeah, gin and jalapeno syrup. It was not bad. It really was surprisingly good. I liked it. You should name it. You've invented a new cocktail. Have I? Okay, I'll think about it. Maybe I'll call it Pele. Anyway, in November of 1992, Paramount Pictures was in the process of making the Sharon Stone thriller Sliver. Do you remember that movie? I do. Yeah. The IMDb page called it an erotic thriller, but I've already said that Sharon Stone is in it, so Mm. erotic would make it kind of redundant. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm. I'm sorry. Anyway, the end of the movie had to be recut a few times because test audiences didn't love the ending, and one of those endings in involved a helicopter apparently flying into a volcano. So Paramount needed a volcano, and location scouts identified Kilauea in Hawaii, one of the most active volcanoes on the planet, and they said, this is it, this is what we want. So they sent director of photography Michael A. Benson and a photography assistant Chris Duddy with pilot Craig Hosking to capture the necessary footage. Wow, that's a dangerous shoot. Indeed. These three had all worked together several times before, and they described themselves as being kind of like a family. As they flew over the cone, Chris took out the offering of gin and tossed it in. But the fierce winds coming up out of the cone kept the bottle from going in, and it crashed into the side of the cone. Mike chuffed Chris because the opening is like two miles across. (laughs) And you missed it. (laughs) And he was like, seriously, dude, what? (laughs) Anyway, uh, Michael said, it's okay, she'll get the idea. Meaning Pele would understand that they tried to get her her nip and that Mm -hmm. would be good enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The three flew over the cone to get the shots and then landed to preview the footage. They decided that, that what they got wasn't long enough and they wanted another shot so they went back into the air over the rim for the second time and the pilot and then his passengers felt an rpm decrease Mm -mm. just before the helicopter warning signals started going off oh my god were they over the the open cone of oh my god Uh, and they were experiencing engine failure they had no more gin they had no more gin though i'm guessing they wish they did (laughs) This happened so suddenly that Craig didn't have time to radio for help, and the helicopter crashed through the plumes of steam and noxious fumes into the Pu'o'o vent on the hot crater floor and sheared into two pieces. Oh my God. Why have I not heard about this? Incredibly, all three survived. Wow. Though there was 
incredible confusion, as you can imagine. And they didn't know because of the fumes and such that they had landed inside the crater. The helicopter missed a steam vent by a couple hundred yards, Mm. and the pilot had narrowly missed a lava pool nearby as well. The electrical system was shot, and they were unable to radio for help. That's one of the reasons why I really am uncomfortable with the idea of flying in a helicopter. In a plane, I can entertain perhaps this misguided notion that if I lose engine power, I can still coast in. There's always the chance that you can coast in tom hanks style well hopefully not tom hanks style but i mean sully not castaway okay gotcha yeah okay Okay. yes absolutely sully not castaway but i've seen video footage of helicopters going down and you're spinning all the way down it's just mirror anyway the crew is in the midst of a cloud of vog which is volcanic smog which according to the u.s geological survey is 99 percent water vapor carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide the remaining one percent is comprised of hydrogen sulfide carbon monoxide hydrogen chloride and hydrogen fluoride not good things no 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 So their eyes are stinging, their lungs are burning as they try to breathe, and they realize as their feet are burning and they look up that they are inside this crater. The men started to climb the rim, but the interior wall, the higher you get, is steeper. It's kind of like a a bowl, so it's a more shallow incline at the bottom and toward the top is more steep. Like an exponential curve. Yes, well, let me ask you this. Did uh, did anybody know? Did they fl- file a flight? I mean, were they there by themselves with nobody knowing that they had crashed? Was People knew where they were flying. I People see. knew the job that they were doing that day. But it happened so quickly they weren't able to radio for help. That's correct. Holy shit. Now, while this interior wall is very steep, it's also made up of volcanic rock, which is very sharp and crumbles very easily. So each step that they made threatened to cut them and also create a rock slide. Chris had climbed ahead, but he got stuck at a point in the crater that was nearly vertical, Mm. and the thick gases obscured their view. So they were having a really hard time keeping track of each other. Craig decided that he was going to return to the helicopter to try to get the radio to work and he, because he realized that climbing out seemed very unlikely. So the three were now each on their own. Chris ahead, mm. Michael in the middle, Craig back at the helicopter. Now at the bottom of the crater... Craig is suffering from a lack of oxygen because that's where all of these noxious gases and fumes are settling. He found a small hill that when he stood at the top, there were gusts of fresh air that would come occasionally so he could breathe. But he didn't know when they were coming or how often. So he's like trying to breathe, getting garbage air, trying to breathe, getting garbage air, trying to breathe, oh, fresh air. Mm. And once he got that fresh air, he would bolt back to the helicopter and try to get this radio to work. But he could only stay there for as long as he could hold his breath or as long as he could stave off passing out. Oh, my God. So it's back to the fresh air, back to the helicopter, back to the fresh air, back to the helicopter, and eventually... He was able, using the wiring from the camera battery, to get the power back to the radio and tell rescue workers what had happened and that they desperately needed assistance. (laughs) I bet you heard that one. (laughs) 
So he MacGyvered the shit out of that radio. Yeah, he did. I mean, literally, there was stripping of wires and he... I think that... (laughs) I think we're living underneath a a family of elven cobblers. (laughs) All right. We're just going to pretend that the tapping is the sound of bubbling lava. Okay, that's a great idea. Every time you hear it, think it's lava. It's like we have our own Foley artist on duty. So... Oh, lava's getting closer. Craig was able to yell to the other guys that help was coming, but that he was unable to breathe. And then they didn't hear anything else from him. So that was kind of scary. Yeah, for sure. Because the the fog is so thick that they can't see each other. They're barely able to hear each other. And now they're not hearing Craig at all. That must have been terrifying. I can't even imagine the level of sheer terror right. they were all feeling. So finally, rescue workers arrived. Over four hours Ooh. at this point, Craig had been in the crater. And... Eventually, they were able to lower the helicopter enough so that Craig could scramble aboard. Oh, my God. But the other two men, obscured by the dense volcanic fog, or VOG, were left behind. Plus, they weren't able to see what had happened with the helicopter. They still hadn't heard Craig. They thought that Craig had expired and that the helicopter just took off. Chris, at this point, still clinging to the side of the crater wall above, and Michael has come to rest on a ledge below, and they are hoping to hear the helicopter return. Unfortunately, the weather kept getting worse. The wind and the rain kept the helicopter from returning for hours. And then it's night. Now, the light from the lava below keeps the VOG kind of illuminated. And so there's this weird, eerie light everywhere, but never nice light, never comforting light. No, you're going to die light. Michael can hear the gurgling of the lava. Their throats are closing up because of the gases. It's not a good situation. So by midday on Sunday... That's right. The next day, Chris had decided that he was going to die either way. So he might as well try to climb the rest of the way out. And if he dies that way, at least he's doing something. Right. Keeping his mind off things. Right. So as he's trying to climb out, the rescue team has returned. They're wanting to do a land retrieval at this point. The helicopter thing they decided wasn't working. So they've sent people up in their outfits, you know, their, their snazzy little rescue outfits they are taking ropes and kind of just tossing them down the side of the crater hoping that maybe they'll land near one of these men they're fishing for cinematographers that's exactly what they're doing because they can't see them and they can't really hear them so they're just hoping they're just tossing try over under that ledge that's where cinematographers feed (laughs) so at one point Chris can see a rope that they've tossed. It's about 10 feet from him. And he knows that he doesn't, he's not able to climb over to it. So he's yelling. He's like, over to the left more, over to the left. They pulled up the rope. In addition to the rope that they're tossing down, they also have like this rescue package, um, you know, with water and Mm -hmm. a blanket and such that they're, they're tossing down. So they toss that down. Who needs a blanket in the mouth of a volcano? Actually, at night, it got very cold. It did? It did. Huh. It's uh, all around not great, basically. Mm -hmm. So they toss that down and it falls past Michael. He thinks it's his friend Chris plummeting to the bottom of the crater. 
Chris can see a rope that they've tossed and it's like six feet from him. Mm. And so he's like, all right, well, I'm going to try to jump for it. And he tries to jump for it just as they're pulling it back up. (laughs) It's awful. No. uh... You can imagine it's terrible. So he's like, all right, well, whatever. So he starts climbing and he looks up and he can see this shaft of light kind of illuminating what he thinks is path-ish. And he's like, I think I can climb this way. So he starts climbing and he's making progress. Unfortunately, because again of the rock, he has to like shove his Mm. arms into this broken rock gravelly stuff. And these whole arms are getting, you know, cut up because he's shoving his arms. That's the only way he can get any traction. It must be like climbing over um, a, a huge pile of broken glass. It's awful. Eventually, he gets to the top and he's yelling to the rescue workers like I'm here help me launch myself over you know the lip of this crater um, and there's no response and so he's like alright so he figures out okay if I jam my arms in like this and if I haul myself up this way I can I can launch over so he is able to get up outside oh of the crater God. he's there and there's no rescue team but was there a bottle of gin because he really could have used it after mm. that <laughs> no no the rescue team unfortunately had had to evacuate because the weather got so bad <laughs> so he's there but he doesn't know where to go he doesn't know where he is so he just starts like tootling and he finds himself back at the rim of the crater he has just walked in a big circle and then he's like okay well try to go this way and then he notices that there are orange cones in the distance and the rescue workers had left kind of a path of orange cones. So he follows the cones down to their camp and he finds where they had, you know, set up camp the night before, but there's no one there because again, they had had to evacuate, but there was a bottle of water and an oxygen tank. So he gets to the bottle of water and you can imagine what, it must feel like to not have been able to drink anything for a day when you're in the middle of a volcano. No big deal. But he's unable to drink water because his throat is so swollen and closed up from the fumes. So he grabs the oxygen tank and he heads and he's just trying to find people at this point. This is 27 hours after he entered the crater. Chris is eventually spotted by a helicopter, and he tells the rescue team that Michael's still alive and inside the crater. Unfortunately, again, the extreme weather means that they can't make another rescue attempt that day. So Michael, now believing that both of his friends are dead, not knowing if anyone is coming for him, spends a second night, cold night, inside an active volcano. It must have been really hard for him to hold on to any hope at this point. And hold on to any rocks true at this point yeah Mm. so because the previous attempts had failed at rescue the production company hired another helicopter to try to rescue michael so the next day this is 47 hours in the volcano holy shit michael heard a helicopter he eventually is able to see you know the shape of a helicopter through the fumes and he can hear a pilot yelling Don't do anything stupid. I'll be back in 15 minutes. (laughs) So I can imagine that felt a lot more than 15 minutes, by the way. Um, And the helicopter returned. 
But because of the noxious fumes, the helicopter can only hover over the opening of the cone for 20 seconds at a time. So it can scootle over, drop down a basket, which is kind of like a net basket. Mm -hmm. It's a basket made of net. Mm -hmm. Drop down the basket blindly, wait a bit, pull it back up. No one? Okay. Move the helicopter away from the opening of the vent. Oh, no. Now they come back. They drop down the basket blindly, wait a bit, see if maybe someone hops in, pull it back up. No person. Okay. Scootle away from the opening of that. They had to keep doing this over and over and over again until eventually the basket was close enough for Michael to get inside. Can you imagine if they dropped it down and then pulled it back up? And then they dropped it down again, and it's further away from where he was. Mm. And he's watching this, and he's going, no! Yeah, it's like that rope thing all over again. All over again. Well, at one point, they had dropped the basket down, and it caught on a rock. And they thought that was the weight of Michael. So they pulled it up. I'm sure they were just as nervous. Well, maybe not just as nervous, but they were very nervous. So they were pulling it up all excited that they had got him. And nope, there's no one inside. Mm. At this point, you don't even know if he's alive. And they're just dropping down this basket. Yeah. So they pulled Michael out of the Vogue just in time, because at this point, he is on the verge of death. After they landed, he was reunited with his friends, who he thought had perished already. Wow. You can imagine what that was like. And he was sent to Hilo Hospital's intensive care unit. As he was being lifted to safety, Michael said, I turned back to Madame Pele and I said, you didn't beat me. You didn't get me. Which gives me goosebumps a little bit. But I mean, to be fair, they... Failed with the bottle of gin. That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. she was pissed. Now, all three men still work in the film industry. Michael Benson, though, chooses to no longer capture aerial footage. (laughs) Yeah, I don't blame him. I'm with you on that one, Michael. 100%. Did they ever make this into a movie? Because this is great stuff. I don't know. I mean, these guys make movies. Right. You'd think it would be kind of top of mind. You'd think so. Craig, the pilot, still does aerial work for the movies. Apparently, he's like one of the most sought after helicopter pilots for the film industry. Isn't that something? Yeah. Well, that is a great tale. I got my information from Film Stories, Tampa Bay Times, The New York Times, and episode 11 of I Shouldn't Be Alive. (laughs) You love that show, don't you? Oh, and Variety.com. Well, believe it or not, The Shallow End is available now. It has launched! With Schneebly and Toth. Uh, we've got an episode up. In fact, I think we just we dropped one episode the day this podcast dropped. And there's another one quickly following. So all you've got to do is go to the website, shallowendpodcast.com, or look us up on any box of oddities, media sites, uh, social media sites, all the links and information there for you. So excited about this. And finally, oh my God. It's been a lot of work. Right? It really has been. Finally get this uh, launched. We're really excited about it. And uh, if you give it a listen, we'd really appreciate it. And if you like it, subscribe and leave a positive. You know all that stuff. You know, tell your friends. Also want to thank our, our most recent patrons. Welcome them to the Order of Freaks. Maddie, Sonia, Amy, and Sir and Madam Hicks. Welcome to the Order of Freaks, y'all. And if you want to join the order, that's another website, theboxofoddities.com. Get the episodes ad-free and a bunch of other cool stuff. 
Thanks for hanging out with us. Until next time, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak, but not over an open volcano. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Yup, it's elves. It's cobbler elves. (laughs) Little elven cobblers.